Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Presidential pledge, Biden promises 600 million vaccines by July end. Olympic operation, Japan begins vaccinating healthcare workers. And Texan turmoil, winter weather causes blackouts and energy chaos. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. Another day of buzzing bees, it seems. President Biden's vaccine pledge at CNN's town hall. Another Bitcoin bounce, too, to record highs. And bond yields bounding to one-year highs also. The yield, take a look at this, on the U.S. 10-year government bond rising once again. This after data showing a 5%-plus jump in U.S. retail sales last month and a rise in producer prices too. Did anyone say the word inflation? But of course, it's a global theme to give you a sense. The German 10-year government bond yield also sitting at nine-month highs. What's the story here? Well, the action in the bond markets reflects hopes of economic recovery and optimism as more and more people get vaccinated. But there are consequences. Rising yields makes borrowing more expensive, whether you're a consumer with a credit card or a mortgage or a government borrowing money too. It also makes the return on bonds slightly more attractive versus stocks too. And perhaps that's what's giving stock investors pause for thought here. We're mostly lower pre-market. We are, of course, sitting near record highs. Alicia Levine, a regular guest of BNY Mellon, told me yesterday that 2% on that 10-year U.S. government bond is the line in the sand. So just to be clear, we're a long way away from that. And she also said lots of sectors are gaining ground, which doesn't happen near stock market tops. The everything rally not only going on in stocks, it seems it continues to lift digital assets like Bitcoin too, currently at a fresh record over $51,000 per Bitcoin. Others, though Ethereum, Litecoin, that we've discussed in the past on the show, also rallying in the session too. Crypto craziness may rule for some, but the bread and butter Buffett effect can still move markets too. Verizon, Chevron gaining pre-market on news that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is buying. He's also eased up on his holdings of Apple. Buffett clearly focused, it seems, on the reflation trade and the return to normalcy. That's a top presidential priority too. Let's get to the drivers. Bold promises with some pretty big caveats. President Biden used last night's CNN town hall to talk about getting children back to school, reforming immigration and this pledge to defeat the pandemic. By the end of July, we'll have over 600 million doses, enough to vaccinate every single American. As my mother would say, with the grace of God and the goodwill of the neighbors, that by next Christmas, I think we'll be in a very different circumstance, God willing, than we are today. John Harwood joins us now. John, as expected, the underlying theme here was from people, when is life going to go back to normal? But as I was watching President Biden making some of these promises and these pledges, I couldn't help but think a lot of this depends on other people, whether it's supply of vaccines, behavior of American citizens, but also, of course, as we push forward here, what Congress does as far as further support is concerned. He relies on a lot of others. 
Of course. He relies on a lot of others. He also relies on the course of the pandemic, which has been unpredictable throughout. It does appear that the part that he can control, which is the uh, selling of this package, uh, has gone well so far. It's polling uh, well, not just among Democrats and independents, but uh, there was a Quinnipiac poll that came out the other day that showed almost half of Republicans in favor of a large COVID package. Uh, he hopes to move that through the House next week, $1.9 trillion, very large amount of spending, both against the coronavirus and social spending, uh, designed to try to uh, rearrange, rebalance the economy in the view of Democrats uh, so that more benefits flow to people at the bottom end of the spectrum. All of that appears to be on track, and what the president was trying to do was take advantage of this early phase of his presidency uh, to try to convey an image of reassurance, of empathy, of calm, in contrast to what uh, uh, Donald Trump had uh, left him, the divisiveness and the um, uh, bitterness that uh, came out of that impeachment trial. He's trying to move past that so far with an approval rating around 55 percent. Uh, he's been having some success, but it's early. And the benchmarks that you mentioned, Julia, uh, trying to get the um, uh, coronavirus vaccines for the American people by the end of July, try to get life back to uh, normal by Christmas time, uh, the uh, uh, verdict is going to be in how well he delivers on that and whether he is, uh, can meet those objectives or maybe even um, uh, meet them a little bit faster on, on the theory that you, it's better for a politician to under-promise and mm. over-deliver. Yeah, actions speak louder than words, and we're all desperately hoping he more than succeeds. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. All right, to Japan now, kicking off its COVID-19 vaccination campaign with the first doses going to frontline healthcare workers. A lot depends on the vaccine rollout going well. In a few months' time, of course, Japan still planning to hold that delayed Olympic Games. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo with the latest. They were one of the latest developed nations, let's be clear, to authorise some of these vaccines. So they are getting started relatively late. Selena, what's the time horizon and the plan here for getting people vaccinated in the country? Julia, that's right. Well, actually, Japan is the last G7 nation mm. to start vaccinating its population. It only just administered those first shots today, this morning here in Japan. The plan is to start with 40,000 doctors and nurses across the country. And then in March, the plan is to vaccinate 3.7 frontline medical health care workers. After that, in April, they hope to vaccinate the elderly population. Those with underlying health conditions are in line after that. There is no timeline, Julia, at this moment for vaccinating the broader population and some researchers have estimated that Japan will not reach herd immunity until October, several months after the Summer Olympics. And in fact, yesterday at a press conference, I asked Taro Kono, who is the minister in charge of the vaccination rollout here in Japan, when he expects Japan to reach that 75% inoculation rate. That is seen as the benchmark for herd immunity. Take a listen to what he had to say here. I'm not, I'm not really taking Olympics into my consideration. Um, I need to roll out the vaccine as I get the supply from Europe. I need to get the concrete number of supply, and then we will come up with our possible target. We're not quite sure what would be the end game of this Pfizer vaccine. 
Now, Japan has reached deals with Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca for enough vaccines to cover the entire population, but those supply shortages, as well as restrictions coming from Europe, could impact the timeline of the rollout here in Japan. And Julia, right now, only the Pfizer vaccine has been approved. That is because Japan requires additional trials in its local population in order to approve a vaccine. Yeah, something's got to give there. It seems all officials around the world are dealing with not only the rollout within their own nations, but of course, simply reliant on when they get those supplies. Selena, what does it mean, do we think, if, we, if we're talking about herd immunity by the end of the year, assuming supplies come as they, as they hope them to, it's long after they're hoping to hold the delayed Olympic Games. Well, Julie, it's a question many here are asking, and there is growing skepticism around whether or not Tokyo can realistically, feasibly, successfully hold these games. But officials here have said that no matter how the pandemic develops, they are determined to host the summer games. This is even though participants will not be required to get vaccinated. And Julie, we've spoken about this before, but public opposition in Japan is high. A recent poll from national broadcaster NHK says that about 80% of those surveyed think that the games should be canceled they should not be held this year or they should be further postponed. Now, in addition to that, when we talk about the vaccine here, another major challenge for the government here is to convince people to take the vaccine. The vaccine is voluntary and vaccine skepticism is widespread here in Japan. There is a history of safety scares as well as concerns about side effects. Now, Minister Taro Kono in his press conference yesterday also said that he needs to come up with a strategy to target the younger generation in specific to convince them and explain to them that it is important for them to get vaccinated as well. This is a problem that countries, of course, around the world are dealing with. Julia? Yeah, education equally as important as the vaccine itself. Great questions in that press conference as well, Selena. Thank you, Selena Wang. All right, to the United States now, where over 100 million people are under winter storm alerts as dangerously low temperatures grip much of the country. The weather has left at least 26 people dead and led to widespread power outages. Many of those without power are in Texas, a state not used to extreme cold. As Camilla Bernal reports. Arctic temperatures and rolling blackouts hammering Texas as the country sees record lows throughout the South and Plains states. More than 3 million homes and businesses without power and heat, including more than 1 million residents in the Houston area. City officials slamming the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the private company that runs about 90% of Texas's electric grid. We've been hit hard by nature this week, but we can't deny that some of this is a man-made disaster as well. And the 5 million residents of this county and really this region and this state will deserve answers from ERCOT and the state once this is over. ERCOT CEO saying the company is dealing with more outages because of frozen wind turbines and limited natural gas supplies. I think what uh, has happened here is uh, a response that kept the grid from collapsing, uh, that kept us from going into a blackout condition. And certainly uh, we need to look at what has happened here once we get everybody back online, which is the number one priority. Texas Governor Greg Abbott placing the blame squarely on ERCOT and has called for a review of the electricity system in the state. The power generators froze up 
in their equipment uh, was incapable of generating power. And then on top of that, of that, the natural gas that flows into those power generators, that is frozen up also. What ERCOT should have been able to do is to have backup systems in place. They have provided zero explanation why they do not have backup systems in, in place. The state's water supply is now in jeopardy. In Galveston, Texas, the water supply is critically low. And in Houston, the mayor warning its residents to conserve water. John Deftarius joins me now. John, Texas in a critical, awful state, it seems. We make the adjustment here to understand that they're not used to these extreme weather conditions, clearly. But when you look at the situation, they're the largest consumer of energy, the largest producer of energy. They have a very unique setup where perhaps you could argue they have too much independence over energy. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way of putting it, Julia. But as I say, this is a perfect storm because it uh, pushed this deregulated market right over the edge. And it's quite extraordinary uh, what we hear in terms of the reporting coming from Texas. But there's comparisons in the energy market uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union, what happened in Russia in the 1990s. If you have underinvestment in infrastructure, uh, when you have a perfect storm like this, it does stretch the uh, operations. And to your point, you know, independence runs very strong in the history of Texas. Uh, they are the number one gas producer in the United States, oil as well, and also wind power, which has come online in the last decade. They have so much energy, they didn't think they needed to tie into the mm -hmm. natural grid, which is extraordinary, or to be able to do so easily. And that's what we're faced with right now. But what did happen? The thermal power coming from gas, coal, and nuclear buckled under the demand. They kind of built peak demand at 67 gigawatts. I don't want to get too technical, but 30 of that came offline. And a lot of the naysayers are criticizing wind, but it only represents four gigawatts. But the wind turbines, as we heard in the report there, uh, froze and it was not built for this extreme weather. So what has happened over the last few years when we talk about climate change, the jet stream has moved down, right? So it's pushing that cold Arctic uh, weather down into Texas. So this is a system that was built for heat, the humidity and flooding from hurricanes, not for the cold weather. So it's gonna be forcing a major rethink in Texas and this whole idea of being independent may go out the door here. That's why they're saying that this regulator has to scramble the egg here and put this omelet back together. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And we've seen this in other nations around the world as they diversify into cleaner energies. When they need that alternative energy demand, they're accused of having messed up the scheme. But in this case, to your point, it's too small a fraction. The problem is they simply weren't anticipating this scale of demand due to cold temperatures. John, what is the governor saying about potentially addressing this and, and changing up the strategy? Well, the Republican governor has been there since 2015. And by the way, a big supporter of renewable energy. I was there last year when we were doing a documentary. and It was quite impressive what they put online so quickly. Uh, the gas production is not going to go away, even though there's the threat of the transition by uh, Joe Biden here to this uh, transition plan of $2 trillion. They're proud of the gas. There's demand for the gas. But the gas also leaves the state. And this is another thing that came up during this crisis, that they had a gas shortage in the number one producer uh, in the United States. And there's another thing that came up, uh, Julia, in my research for this uh, series we were working on, and that is mitigated infrastructure, right? That you have to prepare your infrastructure for the extremes today, not just the heat that Texas was planning on. But because we have the climate change, the architecture and the infrastructure you built and spent billions of dollars on is not prepared for what's 
in store for the next 10 to 20 years. So that's the number one lesson. And number two, clearly the governor has to say, we love being independent as a state, the second biggest state in the, the country, the second largest population. It does not work when we have these extremes that we're faced with today. Yeah, two very vital points. John, great to have you with us and your wisdom on this. John Deptarius, thank Thanks. you. All right, so to come on First Move, a visa that will get you anywhere, including into the world of cryptocurrencies, it seems. We speak to the CEO of Visa. And thinking outside the box, the online retailer that's eyeing growth with a move into Malaysia. So coming up, stay with us. CNN Breaking News. Breaking news into CNN. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has been admitted to hospital after feeling unwell. Buckingham Palace says the move is a precaution on the advice of the royal doctor. The palace says the 99-year-old will spend a few days under observation. And if we get any further news or developments there, we will bring them straight to you. For now. Let's take a look at what we're seeing as we count down to the market open this morning. The U.S. majors look set for a softer open, but still close to all-time highs. Investors nervously eyeing rising bond yields, as we've mentioned already on the show, that could pose a challenge for stock market levels in the future. But with massive liquidity still surging through global markets, Wall Street watchers believe the everything rally can continue for now. The U.S. consumer also getting some of its confidence back, and that's a bullish sign for the economy too. U.S. retail sales up more than 5% last month, the first positive print, in fact, in four months, thanks certainly to fresh U.S. cash payments flowing once again to families in need. Virtually every retailing category saw double-digit gains. Now, cash is out. Cards are king as we shift our pandemic spending habits. Visa earnings show a sharp rise in tap-to-pay transactions worldwide. And while consumer spending outlook is blunted by the pandemic, Visa is planning to make crypto a safe, viable payment method in the future too. Often mistaken for a credit card company, Visa brands itself as a payments technology firm. And last year, just to give you a sense, it processed over 140 billion transactions worth $8.8 trillion in terms of volume. And I'm excited to say Al Kelly is the CEO of Visa and joins us now. Al, fantastic to have you on the show. You have a lot going on. That was just a little flavor. Um, Welcome to the show. As I mentioned there, the pandemic has accelerated shifts in all sorts of ways, the rise in e-commerce, digital payments. There's also been huge challenges for individuals too. Just give us a sense of where we are and, and what you're seeing as the rest of the year pans out. Well, Julia, it's fantastic to be with you. Thank you. Certainly, this pandemic has been a game changer on so many fronts and it's impacted many industries, including ours. I think the headline is that domestic debit and digital is the story. Uh, domestic volume, uh, except for the early days of the pandemic, has largely held up quite well. And it's been driven by people using debit cards for various reasons, including the fact that they feel more comfortable in tough times spending their money versus borrowing money. Additionally, in countries like the United States, where stimulus money was put directly into demand deposit accounts linked to our debit cards, that certainly drove volume on debit as well. And probably the biggest story is digital. Uh, people who couldn't no longer travel, 
saw stores shut down, their favorite restaurants no longer allowing people to sit inside, people went digital. And many, many millions of people around the world for the first time activated in e-commerce. And we have seen massive adoption. And I think probably, Julia, we've experienced a couple of years worth of acceleration in digital in the last nine to 11 months driven by the pandemic and people sitting home. If we look at the holiday season, particularly in the United States, it was amazing where we certainly continue to see a drop off in people traveling. But a lot of that volume was made up from people sitting at home, looking on their computer and uh, and shopping for all kinds of things from everyday uh, items to uh, more discretionary items. So I think the the key to things to watch as we look forward is to what degree and at what pace do the vaccines happen? Uh, how comfortable are people going into things like restaurants and stores that might get a little bit more crowded? What happens in terms of government uh, restrictions relative to uh, the pandemic? And lastly, how much borders open up? One of the biggest mm. negative impacts for the consumer has been the fact that people have been very uncomfortable getting on airplanes and flying. And, and that trend largely uh, continues today. Yeah, I mean, there's so many important points in there and things that we simply don't know. And we have to wait and see how uh, the economy and how the, the pandemic pans out, literally. But there will be viewers watching this going, what does the, the rise in particularly digital payments mean for Visa specifically? And that was why I took the time to explain exactly what you do in the introduction, because I saw a great stat from you guys that for all the and the point I made, cash is out and, and debit is king. Um, there was still $18 trillion worth of money spent in cash and checks. That's your statistic. And I do think we need to remember still in the underlying economy what is going on for all the shift that we're seeing. Absolutely. And four and a half trillion of that uh, spending on cash and check is in, in the United States. The move into digital is uh, very, very powerful for us. The reality is that in any given day in the face-to-face -face world, about 15 cents of every dollar is spent on a, on a Visa card. In the digital world, closer to 43% of every dollar is spent on a Visa card or a Visa credential. And that is because cash, uh, which is one of our biggest competitors in the face-to-face -face world, is not a competitor in the digital world. I haven't found anybody yet capable of stuffing currency into an iPhone or to a, a tablet or to a, a, a computer. So with cash not being and check not being an option, it is an extremely positive trend for a, a, a transaction processing company like ours. Oh, the statistic on the your point about how digital cash is spent is critically important, I think, for people to understand. One of the other things that you're doing, and we're talking about this a lot right now, is what is the strategy as far as the crypto space is concerned? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I see sort of two paths in terms of your vision here. One is facilitating what I know you're very passionate about, which is financial inclusion and allowing or facilitating people to invest in, in crypto or digital assets if they want to accumulate wealth and think there's a way to do that. But the other thing is the network effect. So allowing people to transact between cryptocurrencies, let's use Bitcoin as an example, transact and, and swap that into fiat currency and then spend it. Are those the two paths? 
Well, we want to be in the middle of any movement of funds, and we, we don't try to decide what's going to take off or not take off, and we don't pick winners and losers. We just get ready to enable whatever could possibly happen. And I think crypto is an exciting trend. There are, there's cryptocurrencies, which are kind of the digital gold. Think of uh, Bitcoin, and there what we're trying to do is create utility. Uh, which, first of all, allowing making sure that our Visa cards are, are used to be able to purchase Bitcoin. And then when somebody wants to convert their Bitcoin to a fiat currency, uh, use, to use a Visa credential to you go shop at our 70 million merchants around the world. So we're trying to create that utility. In digital currencies, we really see them as a, a potential player in, in global commerce going forward. And we're doing a number of things to make sure that we enable that to happen if in fact that's what consumers want to have happen. So we're working with 35 of the big, biggest digital, uh, I'm sorry, the biggest crypto uh, wallets around the world, making sure that these uh, various digital currencies can be converted into a fiat currency and that money can then be spent uh, from a Visa card in a, in a wallet, at, again, at any one of our 70 million merchants around, around the world. We're also looking to make sure that we can, and we've been working on our infrastructure for 18 months to make sure that we can enable digital settlement. Uh, today, we set, we allow transactions in 160 currencies, and we settle in the evening on 25 different currencies. Over time, I looked at for us to be able to settle in cryptocurrencies, and we're experimenting with that right now with a, with a couple of issuers and over time with acquirers. And then... Last week, I think it was, we announced a, a set of crypto APIs, which are basically allowing a bank to, for their customers to have an on-ramp through their mobile app or through their website to be able to go buy, uh, trade, and custody uh, cryptocurrencies like Bit Bitcoin. And our, our first pilot is with, with First Boulevard, a, a company that's focused on uh, the black community in the United mm. States and trying to help them. Uh, get to uh, a state where they, they, they're more financially included in the mainstream. And, and that's something that's extremely important to us. The bottom line is that I, I don't know whether crypto will be adopted and at what pace it will be adopted, but we are ready to go and we're leading the marketplace by a lot in terms of setting up the on-ramps for people to be able to facilitate using uh, these uh, various digital currencies. If it's happening, you want to be there. Um, you know, we, we're talking a lot about what we call decentralized coins. But what about because there will be people looking at this who, who know something about digital and digital assets like these and saying they're too volatile. You can't spend these. The transaction costs are too high. What about paving the way one day? And central banks are clearly talking about this as as being a facilitator of using central bank digital money. So a Fed coin, a Bank of England coin. Can you envisage a future where that becomes perhaps a bigger part of the network than any of these individual coins that we've just mentioned? Oh, I certainly can. And we're in conversations with a number of central banks around the world about various private public partnerships where our a network like ours globally can, can really help a central bank that tends to focus, obviously, on their single domestic market. And uh, we have a network that spans virtually every country and territory in the world, and we can help facilitate much wider utility uh, in terms of, of buying uh, if these central bank digital currencies take off. And I think there, there, there's likely, likelihood that they might, and I think that they could be a, a, a vehicle that helps uplift 
some of the 1.7 billion people around the world who today, Julia, are outside the, the financial mainstream. And that's an objective that we share. We, we want all people to be in, in the financial mainstream, and we're going to do every, continue to do everything we can to enable that to happen. It's going to take a long time, but uh, we're patient and we're in it for the long term to make it happen. Yeah, and you have all sorts of programs, which I would love you to come back and talk about again, including enabling, digitally enabling 50 million small businesses around the world. And you've got all sorts of programs, which are phenomenal. I have about 30 seconds left, so I'm going to ask a question that I've been asking all CEOs and presidents of big companies. Any plans in light of what Tesla's done with cash on the balance sheet to swap out some of that cash and buy Bitcoin, for example, or digital assets to diversify your balance sheet, Al? Uh, no, we have no plans to do that, Julia. Our, our, our focus at this point is 100% on being ready to enable uh, digital currencies to be, uh, have utility and be used in a safe, secure fashion for consumers around the world, if in fact that is what takes off. Yeah, you've got enough going on. Fantastic to have you on the show. And please come back and talk to us soon. Great to have you with us, uh, Al Kelly, the Pleasure, CEO Julia. of Visa there. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're watching First Move. More to come. An update once again on breaking news into CNN. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has been admitted to hospital after feeling unwell. Max Foster joins us now from London. Max, what more do we know? Well, um, he has gone to hospital, but the sources I'm speaking to don't sound too concerned, if I can put it like that. So he wasn't, uh, he was driven by car from Windsor to the hospital in London, and it wasn't an emergency admission, I'm being told. He walked into the hospital unaided. All of this happened last night, and it's not COVID-related. We've had lots of questions about that. Uh, and they're saying, basically, the stay in hospital is purely precautionary. He's 100 years old this year, and he was feeling unwell for a period of time. So um, I think that they were just, uh, they just wanted him in a safer place, it seems. Uh, Duke's admission, a uh, precautionary measure, according to the official statement, and it was on the advice of the royal household's doctor as well. So all we know is that he feels unwell. It's not COVID-related. He walked into the hospital, but he will be there for a few days, I imagine. Uh, so we'll obviously keep uh, everyone updated on that. But they're, they're trying to sort of temper a lot of the concern out there because obviously the news of Prince Philip going to hospital initially was very alarming and now they're saying it's precautionary at least. That's, um, that's great to hear, Max. Great to have you on the show and to, to get that context from you too. And you don't take any uh, risks with a 99-year-old. Get him to hospital and hope he feels much better soon. Max Foster, thank you so much for that. All right, on to the European Union, set to receive hundreds of millions of extra COVID-19 vaccine doses. Moderna and BioNTech have agreed to deliver a combined 350 million doses to the European Commission. It comes as Mexico is warning about growing vaccine inequality. The Mexican government is angry at the way vaccines are distributed around the world, saying richer countries are faring far better than poorer ones when it comes to vaccinating their populations. Matt Rivers joins us now from Mexico City. Matt, it's a subject we've discussed a number of times on the show, the fact that developed nations have accumulated and bought multiple times their population requirements in terms of supplies, and there's a huge cost to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no question about that, Julia, and that's why 
the Mexican government is not thrilled. And they're using a forum today uh, at the United Nations Security Council meeting that's ongoing right now as we speak to bring up this issue. The government of Mexico says uh, that when it, uh, the foreign minister is scheduled to talk here within the next few minutes, and they're going to issue what they're saying is a formal complaint, basically talking about this very issue, saying that countries that are able to produce uh, these vaccines end up having much higher vaccination rates than many countries here, than all countries, frankly, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And that, of course, extends out to uh, basically all of the lower income countries around the world. Mexico's government is basically saying at a time when everyone around the world needs and deserves a vaccine, you end up seeing this kind of vaccine nationalism where richer countries are accused of hoarding vaccine supplies at the expense of other countries because, of course, there is only so much supply of different vaccines around the world uh, at this time. In terms of this formal complaint that Mexico is lodging, it's not going to do anything formal other than to continue to hammer home this point that this is continuing to be an issue. This is something that UN leadership is also extremely concerned about. In his prepared remarks, the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, in part talked about just 10 countries have administered 75%, Julia, of all COVID-19 vaccines so far. Meanwhile, according to the Secretary General, more than 130 countries have not yet received a single dose. Now, the WHO is trying to ensure more equitable distribution of vaccines through its COVAX facility. Basically, that's its uh, program to that it wants to distribute more than 2 billion doses, more than half of which would go to lesser income countries around the world by the end of this year. Here in Latin America, though, Julia, consider this. COVAX says that by the end of the first half of 2021, they hope to get some 35 million doses distributed around this region. The WHO also says that more than 500 million people need to be vaccinated fully before this pandemic in this part of the world alone can get under control. So it just gives you an idea how far we have to go and how the unequal distribution of vaccines remains such a big deal to so many countries, not only here in Latin America, but around the world. Yeah, 35 million versus 500 million people that need it. I mean, at this rate, it's going to take years. It's it's frightening. Matt, what are the options? Did they even discuss the options? Because as we've discussed, there's numerous providers and more that are coming online in the States. We've got the Chinese vaccine, the Russian vaccine. Are Mexico even talking about what the options are here, perhaps if they try and not wait for, for COVAX? Yeah, I mean, basically, the more vaccines that are produced, the better. That's the obvious That's the obvious answer here. But it's where do these vaccines go? And, you know, let's say when Johnson & Johnson's vaccine comes online in the United States, how many of those doses are going to stay in the United States? The U.S. has already administered more vaccine doses than any other country around the world. That dis- disparity is going to continue to grow. Here in Mexico, we're talking about a few thousand doses being administered every single day. In the U.S., we're nearing two million doses per day. So that just tells you all you need to know about the difference between two countries that share uh, a common border. But yes, I mean, when we're looking forward over the next few months, Julia, that's what they're talking about. When the Mexican government and other governments of lower income countries, they're saying as these vaccines are going to be produced, they need to be distributed through this COVAX facility to ensure that we bring the pandemic under control globally and not just in the richer countries, which frankly, even though they've been hit very hard in the United States, for example, or in the United Kingdom, their health systems are already better than the countries like 
Mexico or like Brazil or like Bolivia, for example. So that's what these countries are saying. As more vaccines are approved, as more doses are produced, they can't just stay in the countries that are producing them. Yeah, we we should have had a global agreement to get the world's healthcare workers vaccinated first, alleviate some of the pressure on the healthcare system so at least they were protected. But national politics gets in the way. Matt, great context. Matt Rivers in Mexico City for us there. Thank you so much for shedding a light on this story. Stay with First Move. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move on Wall Street. The U.S. majors have opened lower as anticipated, with tech stocks, in fact, suffering the most. We're down some nine-tenths of one percent. All this despite a strong five percent bounce in U.S. retail sales numbers last month, perhaps as we've discussed its concerns over U.S. inflationary pressures that have already triggered a rise in bond yields around the world, including in the United States. U.S. wholesale prices rising 1.2 percent last month. That's the largest monthly rise in over a decade. Something to watch. Now, online retailer Boxed has been called the Costco for millennials. The model's simple, bulk shopping at wholesale prices delivered to your door. Well, the model may be simple, but the technology behind it is pretty sophisticated. Take a look at this. And now Boxed is harnessing that software to expand into Asia. It has signed up to provide the Malaysian e-commerce platform for Japan's oldest supermarket chain. Joining us now is Chia Huang. He's the CEO and co-founder of Boxed. Chia, fantastic to have you on the show as always. You know, the pandemic proved that if you aren't in e-commerce as a retailer, you need to do it really quickly. I mean, you've seen enormous growth just in your grocery business alone. Let's start there and tell us what's been going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for years now, friends and family have called me a glorified ta- toilet paper salesperson. And <laughs> and I guess there was no better profession uh, than that in 2020. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we definitely saw huge growth in our consumer business uh, uh, throughout 2020. And it's carrying into 2021. The data is showing that the customers that came in, some of them are a different demographic, an older cohort. Um, but at the same time, they are stickier in terms of sticking with the service longer than any previous cohort we've seen. I mean, it's not just about the growth that you've seen, the uh, expansion in terms of who actually is buying, but you've also become a third party marketplace. You've also got digital advertising now as well. Talk to me about what's going on there. Yeah, we've always uh, built our own technology. So, you know, as much as we love kind of selling potato chips, uh, the business of selling ads for potato chips is also uh, just as attractive and just as good. In fact, you could probably make a little bit more margin doing so. Uh, And so selling potato chips was where we started. Selling ads for potato chips is where we went. And then today uh, we're selling the software that sells the ads that sells the potato chips. So we're getting pretty vertically integrated here. Yeah, I mean, but it is higher margin, but you've got some stiff competition. There will be people watching this going, hang on a second. Uh, Amazon has a third party marketplace. Amazon sells what you sell. And Amazon also has digital um, advertising on its platform, too. What differentiates you? Why, why does some small yeah. business want to come to you and advertise? That's a really, really good point. Uh, and so that's why I think it's so important that we are partnering with Eon uh, as we go internationally and partnering with other folks as we go internationally, uh, just because we can leverage some of their scale, their knowledge of the local consumer and their kind of brand relationships. So using our technology, which we think is one of the best in the world, um, uh, and then partnering with one of the largest retailers in the world, I think will we'll make for a good combination. Um, so we're pretty excited about it. Yeah. Be more specific, because this is the key, because when you've been on the show before, we've talked about 
your um, toilet paper sales techniques, but we also talked about the underlying technology, the automation and how powerful that was throughout the pandemic too. And this is clearly something that Eon has latched onto and recognises could be quite powerful for them. I mean, you're you're doing this in Malaysia, but they operate in 14 different countries. They have 21,000 different stores. So do you hope to expand beyond Malaysia if you get this right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, uh, at least from the U.S., there's not a lot of talk of, of kind of the Southeastern Asian markets. But when you take take a look at just a few countries, you pair up Indonesia and Vietnam together, well, you get a population that's larger than the United States and probably just as digitally savvy, if not more so, especially when it comes to buying things online. So we're taking kind of what we've uh, talked about on the show previously, like that vertically integrated technology stack of you know, not only front-end software, warehouse management, even down to the robots that we build ourselves and basically airlifting it to one of the largest and more storied uh, retailers in, um, uh, in Asia. So um, it's going to be a pretty wild year. I can tell by your smile you're super excited about this. Um, something else that's got people excited is the rumors perhaps of an IPO, of going public, Chia. Can you, can you address some of the rumors? <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, you're probably wondering and, and you're probably tipped off by the fact that I'm wearing a suit this time on the show. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, <laughs> I had, I've had to up, upgrade my wardrobe game. But, uh, but definitely, as you, as you look at kind of what we do and what's going on in the public markets, you know, you can definitely see that, you know, a story like ours, uh, doing what we do and how we do it, I think will be pretty well received in the public market. So keeping all our options open at the moment, um, but uh, probably see me in a suit more and more these days. <laughs> Next time you can come back in a tie each year and then I'll really know. Exactly. Uh, in, terms of, it's in terms of timing, 2020? Uh, 2021? Uh, oh, my goodness. Look, I've, <laughs> I've blocked out a year. Wow. We, we hope, uh, you know, we hope we'll do something here, you know, uh, pretty mm. soon uh, when it comes to 2021, because, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, um, anything we can do uh, to take advantage of the fact that, you know, what we're doing is so apropos for not only what, what happened last year, but actually as the, the world rounds, uh, uh, kind of hopefully the last bend of COVID. And as we recover, um, you know, e-commerce will be here to stay. So um, we hope to really take advantage of the markets, whether you know, private, public, or anything on the corporate dev side. I think uh, you'll see us doing something hopefully in 2021. You know, I have about 30 seconds, and there is an argument that you could continue to grow and you could stay private. Um, but you are a business as well that cares about its workers, and you've done some incredible things for your, your workers, Cheer, along the way. Um, what do they think, public versus private? Um, a lot of them are watching it right now, literally on the other side of this window. So they're probably, sure. uh, uh, I wish I could turn the camera around. They're all like cheering. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think they're awfully excited. One of the things that differentiates us, Julia, is that we do treat them, uh, I think, with the respect they deserve. So they all have stock options as well. Um, and so putting, like, depositing into that. That, that kind of piggy bank of, of goodwill throughout all these years really paid off during the pandemic. And when we said, hey, it's safe to come into our facilities, we're doing whatever we can, uh, they showed up in full force and we didn't have any disruption at all because um, uh, we trust them and they trust us. Uh, and so uh, I think there's some vindication of what we do uh, with, our, with our employee base. Yeah, um, great work, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show. And uh, exciting times. Please come back and talk to us when you're ready to announce when With you're going to IPO. Gia, <laughs> great to have you. CEO and co-founder of Box there. All right, coming up after the break, Ford going all electric in a major auto market. Details on their ambitious plans next.
Welcome back to First Move. Ford unveiling a new plan for electric vehicles in Europe. The company is investing $1 billion to modernize a plant in Germany as part of a goal to sell only EVs in Europe by 2030. Anna Stewart joins us live from London. Anna, always great to have you on these stories because you read the small print. Tell us what the game plan is from Ford. You know, I love a little bit of small print. And Julia, you may feel a little deja vu because I feel like we were having this exact conversation just two days ago. But we were talking about Jaguar Land Rover. Really similar announcement today from Ford Europe. And this comes after two really tough years for Ford Europe. You'll remember they cut 12,000 jobs over the last two years. They shut six factories. Speaking to the president of Ford Europe, now they are ready for the second half of their transformation plan. And that is all about their electric future. So they are planning by 2026 for all of their vehicles to be capable of having zero emissions. So that means hybrid as well as all electric. By 2030, as you said, 100% all electric vehicles. We spoke about lots of topics, Julia, including Bitcoin, which I know you'll love to jump to (laughs) at some stage. But first of all, I would say that One of the interesting points about electric vehicles in in Europe, at least, is we see all these ambitious targets. And in many ways, these car makers being pushed towards these Mm. electric futures due to all the very strict emissions targets. Countries like the UK saying they will ban diesel and petrol cars by 2030. So really forced into it. And in recent years, we've seen a bit of a lag when it comes to consumer appetite. Does anyone actually want to buy these cars? Is the infrastructure there to make having an electric car easy and worthwhile? And interestingly, from what uh, the president of Ford Europe was telling me earlier, looking at some data, it is actually finally catching up. Uh, Electric and hybrid car sales in the EU trebled last year from the year before. Still nearly 50% of cars sold in the EU are petrol or diesel, but it's certainly catching up. So I think these big investments we're seeing will eventually pay off. Yeah, it's bringing the price down. And to your exact point about the infrastructure, it's charging capabilities. There's no point buying an electric or a hybrid if you can't um, charge it somewhere, if you want to do a long journey. Um, I know we can debate that till the cows come home. Um, Bitcoin. You asked him if he was going to have Bitcoin on the balance sheet. What did he say? (laughs) I promised you that the next time I spoke to a car CEO, I would ask whether they have Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Will they let customers use Bitcoin to buy cars? I'm sorry to disappoint you, Julia. I think he did smile behind the face mask he was wearing. It was kind of hard to tell. Um, But he said he's thankful that is a problem for someone else at Ford, not him. <laughs> For now, let's do it. Thank you so much. Technical Good issues. Job. I'm sorry I could have brought you that interview and his little cackle behind his mask, but uh, next Please. time. You do an awesome job bringing it to life yourself. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages over the coming hours. You can search for at CNN. But for now, That's it from us. Stay safe as always and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 